0: Now, you know what? I like it better. Just stand the whole sermon. What do you think? I got to stand. You might as well stand with me. Uh, No, I'm kidding. Uh, Anyway, that song, which some of you know, maybe maybe many of you know, really is a perfect song to start this series. As Josh said, we're starting a series called Shift. And yes, I said S H I F T. Okay? Every time you hear me say that today, we're talking about a shift in our paradigm, a shift in our thinking. We're going to take four weeks to look at sort of. Some things in in a book in the New Testament called the book of Ephesians, I'll introduce that later, but it's going to help us understand God's dream, God's vision for certain areas of our life. And today, as Josh mentioned, that song ties in perfectly, is God's dream for the church. That the church is not a building, it's not brick and mortar, it's what? It's people. And it's people united around one really belief, and we just sang it, that Jesus is the Christ, the cornerstone and no one else. And it's interesting. Jesus prayed and God dreamed that the church, that the people that believe that would be one, would be unified. That's why today it's all about unity, that the church would be unified. Now, let me ask you a question. Is the church unified? Have you ever studied, you know, how the church is, why it looks the way it does today as compared to when Jesus rose from the dead and started a church. You can read all about it in a book called the Book of Acts in the New Testament. The Acts of the Apostles starting the first church, and again, not a building, but a group of people that believed that Jesus was the Christ. They started a church that has changed and morphed over centuries. In fact, we're going to show you a video over the next six minutes, which will give you a history of, of the church, now, let me tell you this this video goes very fast. I spent years studying this in seminary you 're going to get what I spent three or four years studying in six minutes, so don 't email me and say you, you left out this and you left out this there 's a lot more going on than this. We know that this is just so you and I get a quick flyby Mike Nelson's sitting right over there, and he put this together, and it is actually awesome i think a lot of us would like to put this on the internet and say you want to know why there's so many churches today here's a little walk through history of how we've come to where we are and so with that as a foundation then we want to talk about okay what does god want to do with all that how does he want to shift our paradigm our thinking so that we can be today what he originally dreamed of and actually stated out loud that we would we would become so watch this
1: It's the night before Jesus is crucified. Knowing the adversity that lies ahead, Jesus gathers his closest followers and prays with them. He also prays for the future of his church. I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. Paul, in his letter to the church in Corinth, says, I appeal to you, dear brothers and sisters, by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ, to live in harmony with each other. Let there be no divisions in the church. Rather, be of one mind, united in thought and purpose. If this was Jesus' prayer in the letter written from Paul pleading the church to be unified, then how come to date, according to some experts, there are close to 33,000 denominations? Whew. Of course, there are the basic ones that we all heard of, Baptist, Methodist, Episcopal, Catholic, Lutheran, just to name a few. But have you heard of the Processed Church of the Final Judgment? Man, that sounds like a good time. Or did you know that the Salvation Army is an actual church denomination? So what happened over the past 2,000 years that caused one church to divide into 33,000 different churches? We can't possibly cover all the reasons, but here are a few. The first organized church setting is found in the book of Acts, chapter 2. Peter gives the first post-Jesus sermon, and 3,000 people were baptized and added to the church. Wow, Great start. But then a little later, there was this big argument between some religious leaders with Paul and Barnabas about the Gentile converts needing to be circumcised. And well, that was the first argument within the church. But how do we get so many different churches? Well, let's start with Catholicism. 1.3 billion followers worldwide. And looking at the start of the Catholic church, let's start with Peter. Jesus told Peter that he would build his church on this rock, this being Peter. Peter went to Rome to assume control of the church, but then ended up being crucified upside down on the top of Vatican Mount. That is where the Vatican sits today. Peter was recognized by the Catholic Church as the very first pope. There have been 266 popes since the death of Peter. All branches of the Christian church were birthed from the Roman Catholic Church. On Saturday, July 16th, in the year 1054, Cardinal Humbert strode into a cathedral right up to the main altar and placed on it a letter that declared the Patriarch of Constantinople, Michael Saurularius, to be excommunicated, basically saying, you are dead to me and never welcome back. Well, Cardinal Humbert then marched out of the church, shook its dust from his feet, and left the city. A week later, Saurularius condemned the cardinal. To be honest, they both sound a little bratty. Anyway, centuries later, this dramatic incident was the beginning of the schism between the Latin and the Greek churches. This was the start of the Orthodox Church. Ever hear of John Wycliffe? No, not Wycliffe Jean of the Fugees. This Wycliffe challenged the church and its law that translating a Bible into a common language, such as English, was heresy punishable by death. Not exactly the good old days. So Wycliffe took a risk with translating the Bible and distributing them to the common folk. This was the start of the Reformation movement. His actions were so appalled by the church that after his death, his body was dug up, bones were burned to ashes, and then thrown into the river Swift. Does that sound like unity? Wycliffe's actions were the foreshadowing of another man, a German monk named Martin Luther. On October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther nailed a sheet of paper with his 95 theses to the University of Wittenberg's chapel door. He was not happy with the existing church. Mm. Well, this climaxed into an intense shouting match, and Martin Luther was excommunicated from the Roman Catholic Church. Say hello to the Protestant Church and the Lutheran Church. Then along came John Calvin. John agreed with Martin Luther but not entirely, so let's start another church. Call it Presbyterian. It has something to do with free will versus predestination and some other things, but let's not get into those. In 1606, John Smith, a clergyman with the Church of England, was not satisfied with his infant baptism, so he decided to be rebaptized in the Don River at midnight. Say hello to the Baptist Church. Of course, the Baptist Church had some differences to iron out, closed communion versus open communion being one of them, and... Well, today there are over 200 Baptist denominations with 43 million Baptists worldwide. King Henry VIII and the Catholic Church had a great relationship until they didn't. So King Henry realized that he didn't have a male heir to the throne. So he requested the Pope to annul his marriage with Catherine so he could marry Anne Boleyn, the other Boleyn girl. The Pope said no. Well, King Henry got his way and then declared that the King of England would be the supreme head of the church and clergy. King Henry was excommunicated, surprise, surprise. That was the birth of the Anglican Church, or what is better known today as the Episcopal Church. Out of the Episcopal Church arose John Wesley and his brother Charles. They wanted a more methodical approach to biblical holiness, no small task. So the Methodist Church was born. So many denominations and so little time. It's turned into quite a mess. The Catholic Church with prayers to the saints and confession through a priest, the Baptists who believe in once saved, always saved, while the Methodist holding firm to the belief in that you can lose your salvation. The Methodist welcoming all believers to participate in communion, while the Baptists and Presbyterians say only the baptized can partake. And speaking of baptism, the Baptists say full immersion is the only way to go and no infant baptisms, while the Presbyterians have no problem in baptizing babies since they do the sprinkling method. So who's right? Who's wrong? Or is all of this okay as long as we all believe in this? Jesus is the son of God who died on the cross for our sins and whoso forever believes in him as Lord and Savior shall not perish but have eternal life.
0: Yeah. Mike, did you write that whole thing? That was, that was pretty amazing. That really was. I mean, I spent thousands of dollars, years in seminary, and I could have just watched that video and learned. I mean, obviously, there's much more than we could give you there, but, um, you know, when I first watched that, I thought, how sad. Is that what you're feeling right now? Like, Really? God's dream, Jesus prayed it. It's all throughout scripture is one church, one faith, one Lord, one baptism. And we have more than thirty-three thousand divisions of that one. I mean it's good to learn how, but isn't it sad? It's like, wow. I mean, it's one thing to talk to a lot of us here are church people. And maybe you may have even known some of that, but think about what the people outside the church think of that. Like, if anybody should be able to get along, it should be who? Us. And yet, there's churches on every corner in every city, all over the place. And some of that's beautiful because we're unique and we, we worship in different ways, and that's great and we should be that way. But a lot of the reason there's that way is because of arguments and division and people died because they translated the Bible from Latin to English. It's unbelievable look at our history. It's not a beautiful thing. And yet today is like, could we shift our perspective and say, wow, what was God's dream? What did Jesus really pray? And what would it look like for you and I to live that out today? Seriously, if we lived out what God wants today, and we can, trust me, we can. We can start a movement that I think would reach the world because of the unity that God dreamed of. And it's possible, but we have to change our thinking, shift our thinking to get there. So I'm going to pray. It isn't up to me to do that. God's got to enlighten us. So let's pray that he would do that. Father God, I pray that you would speak, no one else would speak, only you. We'd only hear your voice and your truth would be so clear that it would compel us to live in unity with our brothers and sisters here and in this city, in this state, in this nation, in the world, that anyone who believes in the cornerstone, Jesus alone as the Christ who died and rose from the dead, is a brother and sister to us, no matter what else is tagged onto that belief. They are our brothers. God, unify us and change our thinking today. In Jesus' name. Amen. You know, one of the things we do believe here at Kensington is not only in the, in the statement that Jesus Christ is the cornerstone, but many of you know this. We also believe in the offering, taking money to people like other churches. So we're going to take the offering right now. Because we're going to end the day in communion, and we can't do communion and the offering at the same time. So I'm going to take it right now as I, as I launch into this message. And I, and I was kidding about that, but I'm not kidding about that. Something we believe very important is to, is to support the mission of the church. Again, the, the mission of God's people doing things. And if you're new here today, your next step isn't to give. Your next step is to meet me at starting point afterwards and say, how do I start? I met a guy out there at the end of the last service. He's never been to church before. He says, I'm not a believer, but man, what you guys talked about today would make me a believer. It was that that key, and I'm I'm hoping he didn't give yet, but as he says, this is my church, and says, I'm on this mission, he starts giving, because most of the people that are sitting around you give here online, which is a great thing. So I'll start here. Many of you have heard me say this. I won't belabor this, but I grew up with a single mom taking me to every different church. I actually counted up. I went to 13 different denominations in Finley, Ohio, growing up. I refer to it now as, I grew up, Batho, Metho, Luther, Episcopathletarian. So, I mean, I did. All those and several different Baptist churches with second and third. It was just amazing. But here's the thing about that. I never knew until I was in high school that the reason she kept twisting churches is she kept trying different singles groups to try and find a second husband after my dad left when I was a a little boy. But here's what I remember. I experienced church in every different denomination. And I never knew why... There was a different church on every street corner in my little hometown, but there was. A Methodist church, a Lutheran church, Episcopal church. Spent most of my time in Episcopal church. I dated a girl in college for four years, and we went to her Catholic church, so I, I've experienced all that. I didn't marry her. I ended up marrying Anne, and so now we're back in a Protestant church. It's just it's this crazy journey I was on, but I never knew until I got to seminary what Mike just showed you, this history, which is sort of scary when you look at it, but here's what we want to do today. We want to walk you through, again, God's dream for the church. And here's what I believe. I got one big idea and a couple thoughts. The big idea is basically this. When the church is unified, and when I say the church, I mean all churches of any denomination. When they're unified, the world, the world meaning those people that don't go to church, is magnified. Yeah, see how I created that word there? I wanted to create something that you remember. And by the way, you think, oh, Dave came up with a cute thing. This came from God, okay? So blame God. God gave me this one. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But here's what I thought. When the church is unified, and again, all churches come together and putting their arms around each other as brothers and sisters, whether they voted for Trump or didn't vote for Trump, whether they uh, you know, are Democrat or Republican, whether they are, are black or white or yellow, it doesn't matter. If they believe that Jesus Christ is a cornerstone, the church comes together around that one central tenet. There's unity. You know what the world says? they're drawn to that. Like a magnet, it's like the church becomes a magnet, like you turn a magnet, and they don't even know why they wanna to go to this church, but it isn't because of what they believe in that church, it's because they, those people love each other, and they love people that are different than them, and believe differently than them, they feel welcome to them, it draws people in. If you would ask me why do so many people not go to church, there's more people that don't go to church than do go to church, and I don't mean a bit of it again, or wanna be a part of the family of God, I would say it doesn't have a lot to do with theology, It has some to do with theology, but most of it has to do with what? How people live. They look at the church and say, why would I want to join that? You guys can't even get along. I don't even know what they believe or they believe, but obviously you can't get along, so you split, and you believe. It's just like, it's crazy to the world. It's like, don't you guys all believe the same thing? Can't you put your, no, they watch fights, and then today in the social media world and digital world, everybody's divided. We live in a culture of division. You can't send out one tweet without, am I right? whether it's religious or not. I mean, Donald Trump set one up this week and, whoa, we got the LeBron thing going on. It's like, look at the world we live in. You know, you drive in here and you're looking for Republicans bumper stickers or Democrat. I hope you see none of that. I hope you see the cornerstone, Jesus, being the central thing. So how do we get there? Well, here's the thing. This series is going to be a walkthrough, just a sort of a flyby because we're not going verse by verse. We're going to walk through a book called the Book of Ephesians. Now, I didn't even know what Ephesians was going to all these different churches growing up. I heard preachers like me preach on it, and they always said, we're going to read from the epistle of Ephesians. I honestly didn't know what an epistle was. Maybe you grew up the same way. I was like, I thought it was a gun, a pistol. I was like, why is he called the book of the Bible a pistol? And it's a pistol. What's it mean? Those of you who don't know, it means letter. Now, here's the thing. Paul writes to this church he started in Ephesus. That's why it's called Ephesians a letter to guide them as they start the church that he planted. Why does Paul have to send them a letter? Many of you know this. He is in jail for proclaiming to the world that Jesus is the cornerstone, the Christ, the son of the living God and rose from the dead. And they say, shut up or we're throwing you in jail. They throw him in jail. So he has to write letters. Thank God that we have these letters because he gives wisdom to guide. Now, let me tell you something. The book of Ephesians is my fav- one of my favorite books in the New Testament, because I love how it's divided. There's six chapters. The first three are basically belief or doctrine. Chapters four, five, and six. The second three are basically behavior or how to live this out. So, what do you believe, and how does that impact your life? That's how I try to preach. By the end of this message, if you know me at all, what am I going to say at the end of the message? go do something. If this message doesn't change the way you live today, then what are we doing? Because we're going to think rightly, right belief, and then that right belief is going to lead us to be unified with our brothers and sisters, hopefully today. And so Paul writes this book, Belief Behavior. And so here's another thing you got to know about Paul. He has a a theme in Ephesians, and it's unity. And one of the reasons it's unity is you got to understand the history of Paul. Some of you know his story, I don't have time to go into it, but he used to be named Saul, and he used to try to kill Christians who said Jesus was the way. He meets Jesus in an amazing encounter where Jesus appeared to him alive, changes his name from Saul to Paul, and gives Paul a mission. Anybody know what his mission is? He gives Paul a specific call, unique to anybody else at that time. He says, Paul, you are going to go on this mission. Anybody know their Bible really well? Not that you get extra points if you know this, but you do. You get closer to God in heaven. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Here's his mission you are going to take the good news of me dying and raised from the dead to who? The Gentiles. The non-Jews, the people that the Jewish people thought are outside of God's plan for the world. They're outsiders. They have no way in Him. And God says to Paul, you're going to take that good news to them to show the world I love everybody. So when he writes this letter, it's visceral. And he writes a lot about unity. In chapter 1, he says this, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. What's he talking about? We believe that God wants to bring unity to all things. And that involves the church. And then you go back, chapter four, where he starts to talk about, okay, so what would that look? He says, here's how you would behave if you believe that. You make every effort, by the way, every effort means every day, everything you do, you're making every effort to what? Keep the unity of what? Not human spirit, Holy Spirit of God, the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Now, look at this. He says, there is one body one spirit, just as you were called to one hope, and when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all in all. you see a common thread there? Yeah, unity, one. Already, there's starting to be divisions in the early church. Why? Because that's what humans do. I'm right, you're wrong, this is the way we'd be, you don't agree, and then they get another group, I'm right, 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 We just saw it. It's so scary. And Paul said, no, 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 no. The church is called to be unified because when the church is unified, the world is magnified. They are drawn into this to make this happen. So here's what I want to show you. Where did this all come from? Notice this. This is a big point. Big point. Jesus began the movement of unity. This unified church began where? With Jesus. Jesus began this. Actually, I believe in a very specific moment recorded in Matthew 16 at at an interesting location. And I was just there. and 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 it's so a part of something I just experienced in Israel. Jesus began a movement of unity right before he went to Jerusalem to die. This is in the third year of him pouring into 12 men, his disciples. He takes them to a very interesting place that nobody religious would go. Rabbi said no religious person should ever step on these grounds. It's in the rabbi uh, uh, rabbinical statements. Never. Anybody know what I'm talking about? It's an area called Caesarea Philippi. Now, why it was so uh, afraid of, it was considered the place of the gods, the place of idols, the place of uh, the worship of the fertility god Pan. And there were rituals there. There were worship services which involved sexual immorality and uh, naked dancing. And in fact, I'm going to show you a picture because we were just there And I guarantee you, I didn't understand this. When Jesus was walking his disciples to this place, I guarantee you the disciples were like, wait, 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 where are we going? We don't go there. Nobody religious goes there. The people that were watching Jesus take his disciples there were also probably aghast that he took his disciples there. Now, I've just been there. So I experienced this back in April when we took a vertical marriage retreat and took 19 couples and did marriage, a marriage conference in Israel. But we did the sites and here we, we went here. And I, I'm, I'm watching the teaching went on here and it's all found in, in, in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 16. But what you're looking at, and by the way, I was gonna show you my picture, but it's so bad, I just went on the internet and found a better one because I was too far away and you couldn't see. But this, this rock that you're looking at and even the bottom is called the Rock of the Gods. And you can see those little uh, things cut into the stone. They had idols up there. Pan was half man, half goat, and they literally would have uh, idols of Pan and other gods up in those little porticos up there, even the big one uh, sort of bottom right there, and they would worship these gods, and again, they would do these services which were pagan and evil. Now, here's why nobody went near there. Number one, it was pagan, but the second part was, see the big opening on the left? Guess what that area is called? Back in the day, and still today, referred to as, anybody want to take a guess? The gates of hell the gates of hades you ever heard that phrase you're going to hear it in a second why is that well there was water there a big uh, a well came out of there and the water erupted out and streamed down the thing i didn't have a big enough picture to show you the water coming out of there it doesn't run anymore but that was believed to be the place of satan the place of evil they were afraid of deep water There's so many things I could teach you about the Bible about how they're afraid to walk on water and be in the water, but they're afraid. They thought evil resided there and come out there, and you never got near there, although you worked around there because evil was a part of your pagan religion. So religious people never went in there because that was the gates of hell. You are getting close or even sucked into evil and into the underworld of Satan. So they never went there. So Jesus takes his disciples. By the way, it's like Third year of ministry, third year pouring into him. He's like, okay, guys, we're going on a field trip because the next thing we're doing after this is we're going to live out what I'm going to teach you standing right there. We don't know exactly where he was, but he's standing in front of this rock. And some of you know this. He says to his disciples, now think about this. Now you know the setting. He says to this, says to his disciples, who do men say that I am? Anybody remember the statement? Now, think about why he's saying that. They're looking at the gods that all men in, in the culture worships. And he's saying, okay, they worship all this, who do men say I am? And Peter speaks up. I love Peter. Oh, he always speaks up quick, puts his foot in his mouth often, but he's, he answers this one right. He says, Some say you're Elijah, some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're Jeremiah or the other prophets. And then he asks this question Who do you say I am? By the way, I could spend the whole rest of the day talking about that question. You know why? Who do you say I am? is the most important question you'll ever answer, or I'll ever answer in our life. You understand me? It doesn't really matter what you think about church history or a lot of different tenets of doctrine. It does matter about one thing. Who is Jesus? That's the only question in all of eternity that will matter. Let me ask some. Do you know? Do you know the answer to that question? He asked his disciples, Who do you say I am? Tonight, if you come out to the beach at Stony Creek at 7 o'clock, You're going to see 150 plus, I hope another 50 from this campus just tonight spontaneously say, I'm in. I became a follower of Christ this morning, or I became a follower of Christ tonight. I became a follower of Christ today during communion, or I became a follower of Christ 10 years ago, and I've never shown that to the world. I hope tonight you see that happen. People are saying, I believe that Jesus is the Christ. And so Peter says, he answers, you know, who do you say I am? Peter answers. Look at this answer. It's a very famous answer. In Matthew 16, Peter says these words, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. By the way, again, a whole seminary course, what's that phrase, Messiah? The anointed one we've read about, prophecy is about. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. There is no other. There aren't sons of the living God. There is one, and you are God in flesh. That's all in that one phrase. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God, which, by the way, right answer. There is a right and wrong on this one. Right answer. And then look what Jesus says. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Jonah. For this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood. This doesn't come to us by just our own human thinking, but by my Father in heaven. Anybody that confesses with their mouth that Jesus is the Christ, they're being led by the Spirit of God to that re- realization. That's gonna happen tonight as people tell their stories. It's so powerful night. You're gonna hear people, it's like, how did that happen? God revealed that to them. And then he says this, this is very important. He says, And I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now, I don't know if you just had the visual, but he's, Hades is right there. He's referencing what they're looking at. He says, on this rock, I will build my church, and hell, evil, pagan culture will not be able to overcome it. Now, here's what some of you know, and some of you are going to learn some church history today. One of the reasons we have a split in the church and Mike mentioned this in the video was the Catholics believe that when Jesus said upon this rock I will build my church that Jesus was referring to Peter. You just watched the video. They really believe that, that 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 Jesus was saying I'm going to build my church on this man, this this leader Peter. And he's now the first pope and popes have come 266 cents as the church is being led by a man who Jesus started with Peter. That's the Catholic view. Do you know what the Protestant view is? Uh, do you know that we're a Protestant church? Anybody know that? <laughs> you might not even know that. We're not a Catholic church. We're non-denominational for many reasons, but we are a Protestant church. you sort of... And, and, and here's my view and a Protestant view. And by the way, I'm not saying I'm right. I could argue I'm right, but I'm not going to... Here's what I believe Jesus was saying. On this rock, Protestants believe that meant on the confession Peter just made that I am the Messiah, the son of the living God. That's the foundation of belief that the church is built on. What? Jesus is the rock. Jesus is the Messiah. But you said you believe that. That, I'm going to build my church around that Confession. Anybody that believes Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, died on the cross for us, rose from the dead, forgives us of all our sins, you're part of the church. You're in. That's the foundation of the church. I'm going to build my church on that rock, that statement. Now, that's why we exist. That, that interpretation right there split two major denominations. And then here's what's really interesting. And I got so excited when I was there because I was the next morning going to teach about what Jesus meant and what that means to our lives. And then about marriage right there standing on that rock. And so I'm studying this like I've never studied it before. And something hit me that I'd never seen before just a couple months ago that I've lived out but never articulated. And I saw it from Ray Ray Vandalon, a real uh, Jewish historian that does uh, Israel tours all the time. But here's one of the things he said. He says, think about this setting. Not only is Jesus saying that I'm gonna build my church on that confession that I am the Messiah, but he took them to the place of the rock of the gods. And he said this, the gates of hell, of Hades, will not overcome it. Now think about this. Our gates offensive or defensive weapons? Yeah, I mean, you've never seen a gate run. (laughs) Gates lock people out. They're defensive. They don't let people in. He's looking at the gates of Hades that they're afraid of. He says, I'm going to build my church right here. That doesn't mean in that location. He means in the center of evil. He means in the center of pagan religion and idol worship. I'm going to build my church right there, and it's going to have such an impact. Hell itself will not be able to stop it. So what's that mean? Oh my gosh, this is so, this is, oh, I mean, I I wish I could get in everyone and say, do you get this? Do you get this? This is literally life-changing. It doesn't mean this. It doesn't mean churches should be little buildings where we pull away from the world and we get in our little holy huddle and we pray and sing Kumbaya, and then we go out and do Nothing. And then we come back and do it again. And then because we want to separate ourselves so much from the world because the world's so corrupt and so dirty that we stay away from it, the evil, we never go near it. We build Christian schools and we huddle ourselves away and we build Christian colleges and we huddle ourselves away. Nothing wrong with Christian schools, nothing wrong with Christian colleges, unless that's all they do. What is Jesus saying? He said the church should go attack evil. The church should be the light in the culture that is bringing the good news of Jesus to the workplace, to the neighborhood. Do you understand what the church is? You and I are the church when we leave here. Not when we just come here, we assemble. Why? Equipping, training, refueling, lead people to Christ here. And then we go to what? Go take the gospel to the gates of hell. Do you realize if you're a follower of Christ, God is sending you to your workplace? He didn't send me there. He sent you there. He's sending you to a locker room. He's sending you to a a neighborhood, to to a school. Oh my gosh. Do you understand what Jesus is saying? The church is going to go into the culture, and the culture will never shut it down. The light of God will blast through the darkness. That's what he's saying to churches. All that standing on this rock. Now, here's the scary thing about it. They heard it, and they did, they did that, and then years later, centuries later, we now have two different interpretations of what he meant. But here's the thing. Do I love my Catholic brothers and sisters? Yeah. I played golf last Friday down at my university, Ball State. They have a football alumni golf outing every year, and I go every year as I can. Never won it yet, but we go. And one of the guys I play golf with every year is a guy I roomed with on the road in college. Tim, still one of my best friends. He's a staunch Catholic. Tim and I, on Friday nights, as we go back to our hotel room to get ready for a game on Saturday, would argue almost every Friday night as I became a new believer. Didn't know anything I believed, but I believed he was wrong about the Pope. And he's staunch, you're wrong about it. And we would argue, and I didn't even know what I was saying, but we'd get in fights, and it'd get loud, and people bang on the door, like, settle down, guys. Because I wanted to convince him that my belief, I didn't even know where this came from. I didn't know Matthew 16. I had no understanding, but I knew I was right, and he was wrong. And guess what I did when I saw Tim Friday, as I have done for the last 30 years? I love you, brother. He's my brother in Christ. You know why? Because he believed Jesus Christ is the cornerstone the son of the living God, all the other stuff. Yeah, it's important. It doesn't really matter. Can't we just come alongside each other, brothers and sisters, black and white, red and yellow, different political parties and come around one belief? Jesus is the cornerstone. We just sang it. Do you really believe it? Are you going to love brothers and sisters that think a little differently than you? One of our core values from the beginning, you never heard us say this much. We've said it behind closed doors many times. We said this, unity in the essentials, freedom in the non-essentials. Let's be unified by what matters, the essentials. We believe what a person believes about Jesus really matters. And guess what I'll tell you? That's all that matters. That's all that matters to me. The Word of God is not the Word of God. Okay, I believe it's the Word of God. You don't believe it? Do you believe Jesus? There's so many things I I could get into, different political parties. Oh my gosh, people are arguing about all this stuff, and the world looks at us and goes, Seriously? Aren't you guys like followers of Christ? And Jesus starts his church to be one unified body. And boom, because we're sinners and we're selfish, and I'm right and you're wrong, we split and split and split and split. And let me tell you, when the church is unified, the world is magnified. They're drawn in to that. You know, it's interesting, you notice this. On our stage today, we have a candelabra. And some of you grew up in churches where this was a part of every service. Anybody? I did. Spent a lot of my years in Episcopal Church, a lot of years in Catholic Church. And these, this symbol was there. And I honestly never really knew why. I just knew it was more liturgical and more reverent. And Kensington's not that way. And it was almost like our way is better than your way. No. There's all kinds of different ways. I've now matured enough to go, this is awesome. We're going to take communion later today. And we're going to have these candles up here during communion. You're going to actually get out of your seats in their stations. We're not doing it right now, but we will. And we wanted to do it today to sort of honor our Catholic brothers and our Episcopal bro- brothers. Do it the way they sort of do in their churches, sort of more liturgical. Some of you will love that. Some of you are like, get that in my dial. That's okay. Those Catholic and Episcopal brothers and sisters that believe Jesus Christ, we're unified with them today to say, let's do it a little differently than we normally do it. Let's be a little more reverent than we normally are and sort of be unified with our brothers and sisters who do it differently. And when they come here, hopefully they'll do it the way we do it. Neither is right or wrong. That's a non-essential how you do it. The essential is, do you believe that this highlighted candle a little higher than the others? I never even knew why they did that in the Catholic Church. It's is the light? I could read you from the uh, Common Book of Prayer that illuminates all the rest of the world. Do you believe that? Yeah. So do they. And so they focus on this as they walk forward to take the body, the bread, and the juice. And by the way, Catholics believe different about the bread and juice than we do. Transubutation is this 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 thing that happens. They believe that when the priest consecrates that bread, it becomes the literal body of Christ and the literal Blood of Jesus, we don't believe that we believe it's a symbol. Are we right and they're wrong? Who cares? Some of you say, You got it. Who cares? I believe they believe Jesus is the Christ. Let's remember, like Jesus told us to do, his death and his resurrection for us. I'm running out of time, so I don't even have a whole lot more to say except this Jesus, Mike referenced it in the video, actually prayed. I wrote down in my notes, He begged God. For unity. We know the Lord's prayer, our Father art in heaven. That's not the prayer I'm referring to. I don't even That's not really the Lord's prayer. The Lord's prayer is a whole chapter in the book of John, chapter 17. I won't read it to you. Go home and do some homework. You heard it in the video. Jesus basically prayed, knowing what the future could be, God, make them, who's them? The church, those who believe in me as the cornerstone, make them one as you and I are one unify them. I think he had an idea what the, what the church could do when humans get a hold of it and it could split. And he prayed. That was one of his biggest prayers. Father, unite them. Why? Because he knew if a church is united, the world will be impacted. But here, I'll just tell you one last thing. As Mike referenced in the video, the first division happens immediately in the New Testament. You want to study the beginning of church, again, the book of Acts, and you have Peter and Paul and the disciples going, being sent by God to start churches. And again, Paul was sent to take the gospel, not just to the Jews, but outside the Jews to the Gentiles. If you're not a Jew here today, you and I are Gentiles. The gospel would have never gotten to us if the Jews were, they were going to keep it. They thought they were the chosen people and only them. And God says, now we're going to break this out. And let me tell you, that didn't go over well. That did not go over well. In fact, in the book of Acts, and again, I won't read it to you, after, just read chapter 10 through 15, you see this whole council comes together to debate this, and there's very strong emotions going on, because Peter and some others are believing that if you're a Gentile, to become a Christ follower, to become part of the faith, you have to get circumcised as well as belief. Now, wait, 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 wait. I I sort of like the idea of just get baptized. You don't have to get circumcised tonight. We're not doing that. We're just doing baptism. But back then, it was a Jewish custom on the eighth day that they would be circumcised, and that was a sign that they are in the Jewish faith. And so he was saying that's what they had to do. Gentiles have to do the same thing. And Paul's like, and actually, God spoke to Peter through a dream. You don't think God speaks and even could do it through a dream? He gives him a dream of unclean animals and tells him to eat this in the dream. And Peter says, I will not eat anything unclean. And God says to Peter in a dream, do not call unclean what I have not called unclean. And then sends him to a Gentile. And he says, I will never step in a Gentile's house, but God has showed me that he shows favor to all people. And so God is trying to get through even the early church, be unified. Be unified change your thinking about this. Because think about this. They were saying, if you want to come into our faith, you have to be circumcised. Can you imagine this? Guys, can you imagine this? You're walking to church with your wife and kids, right? And you walk up and you see the sign. Can't enter here unless you're circumcised. You're like, go ahead, guys. I'll just think about this for a while. I mean, circumcision, I mean salvation by circumcision is not a plan of God. It's like, oh my gosh, that's what they were doing. And yet God says, be unified. And guess what? They actually did become unified, and that's the picture of the church today. One faith, one Lord, one baptism, one body. Can you walk out of here today and put your arms around people that believe Jesus is the Christ but believe different things about other things that I would say are non-essential, but they believe the same with you about the essential? Oh, my gosh. If we can't do that, what's our future? The world will never come to Christ because they look at us. I'll never forget, I'm in seminary. I'm going to this baptism event on, a, on a, a mountain in Southern California called Big Bear Mountain. And I'm not doing anything there. I'm just going to this event and I'm in the parking lot and I start up a conversation with this dude from another church. And I'm not kidding. I'm a theological student. I know theology so well. I've learned all this stuff. Somehow we get into a debate about baptism. And he says, you can't go to heaven unless you're water baptized, immersed. And I say, that's not in the Bible. Yes, it is. The book of... And he starts quoting scripture. I say, no, that's a work. You get to heaven through faith. No works. Baptism, be aware. We start yelling at each other in the parking lot. Isn't this a wonderful kumbaya moment? He's yelling verses, I'm yelling verses, and I'm like, you're so wrong, what are you talking about? And he's saying this, and we start yelling, not realizing we escalated to this point. Didn't even realize it until a guy, a non-Christian guy, who is not part of our event, is walking through the parking lot. We don't know him, I don't know him to this day. He's just walking by, and we're yelling at each other, and he goes, hey guys, and we both look at him, he goes, don't you guys both believe in Jesus? Aren't you guys like both Christians? Uh Uh-huh. And you can't get along? (laughs) He just walks away. And we both looked at each other like, oh my gosh, it took a non-believer to point out the foolishness of this debate. Am I going to take a bullet over baptism? No. I believe strongly what I told that guy, but it's not going to divide me with my brothers and sisters to think differently about that. Will I take a bullet over the confession that Jesus is the cornerstone, the Messiah, the Son of the living God? Yes, I'll die for that one. If you say I have to be killed because I believe that, then kill me. If you say I have to be killed because I think Jesus is coming back pre-trib, post-trib, or mid-trib, some of you don't even know what I'm talking about. Doesn't matter. He's coming back. I don't know when. I don't know how. You can debate all you want how. Churches have been split up. By beliefs about the rapture. you got to be kidding me. you got to be kidding me. What is the world thinking of us? We can't get along about this. It's like, oh my gosh, this is a moment for Kensington to say to the world, we love every church in the area. And if you like a church better, go. We love it. Awesome. Woodside, you're awesome. First Pres, you're awesome. 1st Presbyterian, Pres, you're awesome. I mean that. I really do. They're reaching people we'll never reach, and we're reaching people they can't reach. But can we be one? Can we be unified? Oh, my gosh, if we can't, what hope is there for the world? But if we believe Jesus is the Messiah, and he said, love everyone. Out of that love, then we come together as one. And communion is a moment we get to do that together. Now, here's the thing. I know some of you have been so raised in this. You're like, can I take communion here? like, the Baptists believe you have to be baptized. We don't. We believe if you're a follower of Christ, you get up, you walk to one of these stations, the ushers going to dismiss you by sections, just walk up. Man, take communion. This isn't the table of Kensington. This is the table of Jesus, and he welcomes all. Here's what I believe. Some of you, this is your moment right now. When you walk to get that bread, a symbol of his, of his body, get that juice, symbol of his blood, This could be your moment to say, this is my walk. This is my day to give my life to Christ. Come back tonight at 7 o'clock and tell us your story and get baptized. What a day. This could be a life-changing, legacy-changing day for you. Others of us believe already. And this is a moment to do what Jesus says. Remember what this means. And I love that we get to walk today. Because sometimes communion can be, you know, sort of individual. This is more communal because we're talking about unity. As you walk, you get to look. And again, I'm not saying you judge people. You look at the beauty of the body of Christ. People look different. People act different. People believe different. But we're all one going to the center, the cornerstone of our faith together. Go ahead and look at people and celebrate the diversity of God's uh, church, God's unified body. And then come back to your seat, and we're going to sing a couple songs. The first one is everything we talk about, only Jesus. It's all that matters only Jesus. And then before we believe, we're going to sing the Apostles' Creed, a creed I stated many times in all these denominations growing up. It's a tenet that was supposed to unify the church to say, this is what we believe, that God Almighty and the whole thing, and we get to sing that out. So here's what we're going to do. As they dismiss you, go to those different stations near you, go back to your seat, and take communion on your own. If you want to take it even with a friend, take it in unity And then as you do that, you can sing and we can be one body worshiping God. Father, I pray even now that you lead us to the light of God. Even these candles represent you and our brothers and sisters who are unified with us through one belief. Jesus, you are the cornerstone. Jesus, you are everything, only Jesus. So God, as we walk, as we remember your death for us, your your blood shed for us, that we are forgiven. Help us to become forgivers out of that forgiveness. Oh, Lord, meet us right here, right now. In Jesus' name.